do appreciate the talent that is in this building, in this congregation. I forgot to mention Courtney last week. Uh, all of you who sing and play, I've heard of dueling banjos, but never dueling piano. But that was, that was really, really good. I appreciate that very much. We are still in the book. Yes, I'll turn this on. We are still in the book of uh, Jude, and we will be for today, plus four more sermons or Bible studies from this particular book, and I find this to be a, a fascinating study, uh, only 25 verses, and I hope you're reading it. Uh, George told me he made it all the way through the book in, in one week. I'm very proud of you, George. <laughs> uh, I know he was teasing. It took him 10 days. Uh, But this morning I want us to continue to look at the epistle of Jude. And I want you to notice, first of all, the original reason for which he was going to write. He mentions it being our common salvation shared in Christ. Notice verse 3 here, and I hope you follow along. He said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And then in the very next verse, he tells us why he had this push, this urge, this feeling to change it. He said in verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men. And notice these next two phrases. Who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, or licentiousness, whichever version you have, and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a few things I want us to notice here. The very fact that certain unnamed men crept in, unnoticed, at least at the beginning, should give us something to think about. The church needs to have her eyes open every moment of every day. Even That even such a, a thing could happen in spite of the warnings that had already given by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, and a few others as they wrote the Word of God. It's amazing then how much, it should not amaze us, I I guess, as to how easy it is for this to happen in, in the 21st century, in 2022. And with this in mind, Jude's call to, now notice this, contend earnestly for the faith. This becomes even more relevant for you and me as we live our lives in this world. If we would really think about it, we should truly appreciate, I believe we should appreciate the fact that, and the need that we need to contend for the faith, earnestly for the faith. Why? Because it's so necessary. Because there's so much false teaching, there's so much false ideas and, and twisted thinking that people have that we need to be a part of helping them to change their thinking and change their mind. We understand or should understand also the how, and we're going to as we learn to contend earnestly for the faith. Now I'm sure this is not going to be exhaustive, but I'm going to do my best to bring out uh, uh, all of the important areas of this study. 
So in this study, for, as con contending earnestly for the faith, I want us to notice, as you see in the bulletin, the need as well as how to contend for the faith. So first of all, let's look at the idea of how or the need to contend for the, uh, the faith. Why the need? Why is there a need at all? Well, if you notice what he says, some people in our world, even today, and back here at Jude's time, it was the same way, they would deny the all-sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures. Even of the Old Testament Scriptures. They were not sufficient. So man had to put his traditions in the way, and the Word of God got pushed aside, and the traditions became what they followed. We can see the need for, from the phrase in verse 3, the faith. And that is very distinguishable in the Greek language, in the original language. The faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And the term once for all can be stated without changing anything. It can actually be stated one time for all time. One time for all time for all people. If we extend it out that way. That is, there is one faith. Ephesians 4, 5 tells us there's one faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who's over all, through all, and in you all. Sounds like a southern writer. But the faith, that body of doctrine which we are to believe was delivered to the saints, to the church. One time, for all time. Revelation from God is not something that was meant to be repeated later because they just didn't get it the first time. It was not something where something else had to be added to it because God forgot something and now we have to have something added to it. We have to have, as some say, another testament of Jesus Christ and this makes the Mormons and the JWs in error of the Word of God as it was written originally. But the fact that God has revealed all that He would have us know and given us all that we need to have to be the Christians we are, we see this stated in Scripture very plainly. In Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he told them, he said, I have not shunned or shied away from proclaiming to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, even what Paul wrote and talked about and was given by God's Holy Spirit, it was the whole counsel of God. There's nothing missing. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter tells us that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Not just a few, not just the majority, but He's given us all things. So therefore, if we have all things, and we do, and if we have the whole counsel of God and we do, then there's nothing else that we need. We don't need another revelation. We don't need another testament of Jesus Christ. We don't need somebody getting a vision or a call from God, a prophet saying, God has given me something new, and now you need to listen to this, which is extra outside of what he's already said. Paul speaking to a young evangelist in his day, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you know this, you probably will say it in your head while I'm reading it. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that, 
And we need to hear that so that the man of God may be thoroughly or completely equipped for every good work. God's word gives us all we need. But when people suggest, and they do suggest very diligently, that God's revelation is incomplete. God's revelation is still in progress. God's revelation is still insufficient. It's not quite enough. Or that God needs to repeat it for some reason. He left something out that we need to know. And that tells me, that should tell you, you as well, that this is the reason why we need to contend earnestly for the faith. There's only one faith. And I believe every one of us know that. But Jude talks here in verse 4. He talks about that those who will pervert. Now, you know what pervert means. It's a noun and it's an adjective. There are perverts and there are those who pervert. These people perverted the doctrine of grace. Look at verse number 4. Jude says there were those in his day who turned the grace of God. Now this should turn our stomach. They turned the grace of God into licentiousness or lewdness. That is, and if you go back and read the history, and maybe you don't want to for what I'm about to say, during their worship services, they would have lewd acts taking place right up front for everyone to see. And everyone and anyone who wanted to be involved, come forward. Let's turn the grace of God who loves us so much, and He will forgive us of this, but let's just let our, our sensual desires go haywire. And that's what they did. But they didn't get this from a study of the Word of God. They didn't get this idea from opening up the Word of God, reading it and studying it and accepting it as the whole counsel and everything we need for life and godliness. They had added to their own man-made doctrines and they said this is what we're going to do to the degree that it was even the world said, I can't believe they're doing that. The world saw what they were doing as being, wow, they're really out there on a limb. So much, they engaged in open, shameful, lewd, wicked acts in their worship services. God forbid that we have that kind of an attitude. As we see in the Romans chapter 6 and preceding chapter 6, Paul dealt with this attitude that some had. Their idea was, you know, God is so graceful and He will give us His grace. He will, just, he will just lavish His grace on us. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to sin and enjoy every passion we might have running through our mind. If we see something, want something, and something else wants us, we will just get actively involved in that in a lewd and lascivious, wicked way. Because God is so gracious. That's what Paul dealt with here. Isn't God good that even in our sinfulness, He will forgive us when we say, forgive me God. But Monday through Saturday, even on Sunday, they will commit these acts and God will love us at the end of it anyway. Why? Why do people do this? Well, two reasons which I've discovered or found 
to simply excuse their total disregard for the commands found in the Word of God. To push aside even the simple neglect not the assembling of yourselves together. To neglect the Lord's Supper. To neglect prayer. To neglect the four elements of of worship found in Acts chapter 2. They they do this to justify their lifestyle that is so contrary to the scriptures because they're likely to say something like this. Well, Mark, I believe that God is too loving. He's too loving in His grace. He's too wonderful to condemn us when we are really so sincere for that hour on Sunday. Even when we come together and do the lewd acts we do, we step back and say, God, we still love you. Forgive us. Forgive us. Help us to love you more. But those who contend earnestly for the faith once delivered for the saints, they will see it a little bit differently, quite a bit differently. Paul talks to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, if you want to turn there. In Titus chapter 2, Verses 11 and 12. This teaches us that we will be ever mindful of really what the grace of God is for. Titus 2 verses 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And notice verse 12. It, that is the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It teaches us to say no to worldly passions. It teaches us to say no to what we want, dying to ourselves and giving in to the will of God. It teaches us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. And this speaks even to 2022, February the 13th. And it will still be relevant next week. The grace of God teaches us as we simply study the Word of God, have a desire to get into the Word of God, it teaches us to deny our ungodly, ungodlike, and worldly lust that we might have. It teaches us to deny our selfish interests and put the things of God first. It teaches us to live soberly, of sound mind and godly in this present age. I find it amazing, as I teach these men in the jail, I find it amazing that a simple, a simple study, a simple look at, a simple reading of the Word of God can change the mind of those men in that jail. They've told me, and I give the glory to God, they said, Mark, we've never heard anybody teach the Bible like this. And I really believe the reason is they do not teach the Bible. They teach what they've been brought up with. And they turn the grace of God into lewdness or they turn it into something ungodly. A tradition of man rather than here's what Jesus said. I actually pointed to the guys. I showed them scriptures about baptism. I thought this was interesting. I said, read Mark Mark 16, 16 and Matthew 28, 18, 19 and 20. They read it out loud. Jesus said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And I said, I'm going to tell you something right now, gentlemen. You do not need to be baptized. 
And they looked at me and they looked at the Bible and they said, but the Bible says, and I said, praise the Lord. Don't take my word for it. I was playing with them a little bit to teach them something. But there are some who will go even further. And I find this is even in the church today. And I mean the church overall. But it may also fit Pleasant Ridge Church of Christ. And I hope it does not. But there are some who will even deny God's authority. In a small way. Or altogether. Jude had to deal with this in verse 4 as well. When he... He says there, they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the emphasis in that verse seems to be on one word, Lord. The word Lord in the Greek language has the idea of supremacy. He who is supreme has supreme authority. And we need to see that. These people were denying the authority of God. They were denying the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in the things that were written and came through the apostles. They denied these things. And the men, these men who crept in unknowingly had over time began to say, we need to take some authority here. We need to make some changes here because it's the 21st century. We don't need to believe in that stuff that's so antiquated and outdated of the first century. We are a wise group of people. We can come up with our own religion, our own doctrines, our own teachings. Today, we're often faced with people denying the authority of God and Christ in, in at least a couple of different ways. Some by their lack of respect for the Word of God. Even in simple things. A lack of respect for what the Word of God has to say. If the Word of God says, if Jesus Christ says, all authority is mine, and if He tells us that we need to neglect not the assembly, Mark, why do you keep bringing that up? Because we need to be reminded that that's what we need to do. But if we neglect that, we're saying, Lord, that authority is no longer yours. I'm taking it on myself and I'll deal with you, God, when I get to heaven. Others will set up standards of authority for what they believe, what they practice, what they teach, or what they even refuse to teach. Such as synods or hierarchies conventions that they put together to change church doctrine, to vote on things, to allow homosexual preachers living that lifestyle with their husband sitting on the front row. Or, sadly, their wife, a female, sitting on the front row, accepting that and not seeing it as a sin against God. Others will set up popes, bishops, Ministers, pastors, or their own person as being wise and far above all, all others because this one person, this prophet of the 21st century, had a vision from God. God spoke to him or her last night and said, tell the people this. And he spits it out and they say, Ooh, praise the preacher. And they follow the man. But those who contend earnestly for the faith, 
those of us who contend earnestly for the faith will recognize when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the co-creator of the universe, the one who's coming back to judge the living and the dead, when He said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. And my friend, we accept that, period. When He says in Ephesians 1, 21 and 22, through the Apostle Paul, He said, Jesus Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named from this time on. Those who contend earnestly for the faith will accept and recognize the authority that was delegated to the apostles by Jesus Christ that what they wrote in the word of God is what it is we need to follow. What it is we need to listen to. It should be so clear to you and me today that the need to contend, the very need to contend for the faith is an ever-present, everyday battle that's going on. We need to see that. Just as there were those in Jews' day who denied the all-sufficiency of the Word of God and who perverted the doctrine of grace and denied the authority of God and Christ Himself. And my friend... Those people are alive and well today. Oh, how we need to see them. How we need to love them and teach them and train them. And that brings us to point number two. How do we do that, Mark? How, how do we do that? The, the vivid expression, I won't give you the Greek word, it's about this long. I won't impress you with how little I know about the Greek language. But to look this up, the word contend earnestly is one word in the Greek. And I believe this is the only place we find this particular Greek word in the New Testament. Contend earnestly has the understanding alongside the English, ver the English translation of that is agony. An agonizing situation. One man said the term is associated with struggle and strife and combat of a most vigorous and determined variety. But the tense of the verb in the Greek language, the tense of the verb has the understanding of it's ever-present. It's not something that happened and whew, I'm glad that's over. But it is an ever-present... It is not a weekend warrior type of thing that the, the Christian needs to live. We don't come here on Sunday to do battle and then take our armor off and walk out the doors and wait till next week and we sit in the same seat next week and pick up our armor and put it on for a little bit. But my friend, it is an ever ongoing war. Jude believed, and it seemed to be the case, not only in Jude but other books of the Bible, that the very foundation of Christianity was, was what was being attacked here. What was trying to be undermined. And in his words, as given by the Holy Spirit, nothing but vigorous and continuous counter-contention would ever be sufficient to win this battle. It does not take a lazy man to win a battle. The use of the expression that Jude gives to us here tells us something that we really need to hear. Jude is telling us that the matter, the subject matter of which he writes is serious. 
This is very, very serious because this is mentioned at the very beginning of his writing this particular epistle or letter. And it's a, it's a voluntary army. You do not have to fight. You do not have to contend. You do not have to be earnestly invested in the things of God. It is voluntary. But we will not get in unless we volunteer. That's a given. Decades ago, and even in recent decades, people used to sit around the radio before television when there was a war going on overseas and their, their brothers, their fathers, their husbands were at war. They would uh, sit around the radio and they would listen to what was taking place. Is there any news? They, were, they feared the worst. They feared the worst. They did not want to hear... You lost your husband, I'm sorry. You lost your brother. You lost your son. You lost your uncle in the war. I'm so sorry to tell you that he will not be coming home. They feared the worst. But the words they wanted to hear, the words they longed to hear on that radio, and even many wanted to hear on TV as we watched the war take place right before our eyes, we wanted to hear four words. The war is over! They're coming home. Oh, we wanted to hear that. And it did happen for many, many people. We do not see anywhere in Scripture. There's not even a hint as we read it and study it that, that any writer or the Holy Spirit ever said, the war's over, church. Relax, retreat, sit back, and do nothing. We're not told anywhere that the enemy's given up. They're tired of the fight. The war's over. But my friend, if you're a Christian, you long for the day when we hear Jesus Christ come through the clouds and He says, the war's over. Come on home, child. Well done. As you stood in the battle against evil in your life. Paul describes the nature of our warfare in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians 10 and Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be there for just a couple of moments here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and Ephesians chapter 6. But first of all, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 through 5, Paul describes our, our warfare, our our. Uh, uh, a nature of the battle in which we are living now. In verse 3 he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We're at war, people. Ephesians 6, verses, uh, verse 10, starting in verse number 10 through 13. He says, Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on part of the army of God, armor of God. Anybody watching? Put on the whole armor of God. 
that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all else, to stand. We must have our weapons. We must wear our weapons. We must use our weapons. I want to ask a question. How many of you right now are carrying, if you don't mind raising your hand, how many are carrying in this room? One, two, three, three or four. Some of you may not want to admit it, and that's fine, but I don't know if I feel threatened or or safe, especially the ones I saw raise their hand, but you know, when we, when we have the weapons of God, we should not conceal them. They should be right out there for everyone to see, not to boast in us, but to boast in our God. Notice as Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verses 13 through 18, just want to lay out the highlights of this. He talks about being girded with a belt of truth. Now, a belt is something we all have to wear well, the guys do anyway, because if you don't, you're going to be embarrassed if your pants are just a little bit loose. The belt is what holds all of the other gear together in, in this description of the, the, uh, the elements that we are to wear. There's the breastplate of righteousness. That is, it is right out front. We're going to do everything in righteous as God tells us. Our feet are shod with the gospel of peace because we march through this world ready to serve God. He speaks about the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the old devil. He speaks about the helmet of salvation, having it on at all times. Because that is where... That is where the brain is, and we want to protect the brain because the next one is the sword of the spear, which is the word of God. And then finally, and he doesn't end with the helmet, but he talks about watching, being on watch with all prayer. Never stop praying. Paul tells us to always be in the attitude of prayer. But I notice the, that most of these, if not all of these elements of warfare are for our defense. And this is important because if we do not wear them, we will be finding ourselves lost in the struggle. What do I say? What do I do? I don't know because I took the helmet off. I don't have the breastplate of righteousness and I certainly not going to wear those shoes because they just don't look good in public. The elements of truth. Righteousness. The written word of God. Salvation, faith are all needed for our salvation, but they're also needed for those with whom we will contend. And that is so important. We are not called like some religions in this world who say, kill the infidel. And they do. We're not out to destroy. We are not out to kill, but rather we are out for the purpose as the church of Jesus Christ to convert those lives to the captain of our salvation. 
good piece of advice a preacher gave me many years ago before I even became a minister, a preacher, an evangelist. He said these words, and they're very, very good for each one of us, I think, to remember and hold on to. He said, Mark, let's not be too quick to take up the sword, but drop all of the other gear on the ground. We're not here to do battle alone with the Word of God. There are other elements that God gives to us in His writings, in His scriptures, that sometimes we don't see as elements of defense. And we kind of touched on this in class this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, I won't read it all, but Paul speaks about having qualities such as the meekness and the gentleness of Christ that comes out of us as we contend earnestly for the faith. In Galatians 6, 1, he says, making sure that we are first of all spiritual and then displaying gentleness and caution in what comes out of here, but listening more than we speak. And that was our class as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy to keep ourselves from quarrels. We should not get into a quarreling match, a battle, a battle of words and wits and, and, and arguing about things. He said, apply gentleness, apply the word of God with patience and humility, while at the same time, in your gentleness, correcting the opposition, if they will listen. Those who contend earnestly for the faith. It is not a license for us to get into a, a, a screaming match. But it is more of a license for us to reason with people. To sit down with them. Have a real conversation. The minute one rises to a, the, the area of arguing, maybe that's when the Christian needs to listen a little bit more and hear something in what they say that will counteract even what they believe. We are to do this with patience. But it's a call for us to vigorously contend, making all of the weapons of God, all of the weapons of God available to us and wear them and have them and use them. And the more you use any weapon, the better you get with it. First and foremost, we, beginning with the truth of God, we need to apply it to ourselves. And until we apply it to ourselves, we will not be able to apply it to anybody else. It is the church's responsibility, the church's mission that we have taken on when we said yes to Jesus Christ, when He said, will you marry me? Will you be my bride? We accepted this mission, but some of us have backed off and, and, and taken authority on ourselves saying, well, that's just not for me. But it is for us. We need to take on the Christ-like qualities of meekness that we might win over other people. To the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a, it's a fact, but it's a sad fact that, that many are not obeying the very truth of God. Even those who sit in worship services every Lord's Day. Even those who sit in Bible studies. Many pervert his teachings and they set themselves up as being the authority rather than God. That's when it becomes necessary for you and I to deal with a brother or sister in Christ who's maybe falling back a little bit and get in there and contend with them lovingly, gently, encouragingly to tell them, we really need you. We really want you to be more a part of us. 
get back into the, the game, warm up to the fires of God. But my friend, we need to understand there is a battle going on. It is an ever-present battle. Unless you're not contending for the faith. If you're not contending for the faith, life is easy for you. It will be easy only as long as you live on this earth. My question is, whose side are you on in this battle? Have you submitted to Him to whom God has said, He is all authority? Listen to them. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Do what He says. Are you continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine, the Word of God? In the fellowship of joining together, not neglecting the assembling of ourselves together. In the breaking of bread, not neglecting the Lord's Supper. And of course, in prayer. If you're neglecting one of those you're at fault. If you're neglecting two of those, you're at fault. If you're neglecting three of those, you're at fault. And if you're neglecting all four of those, you're as guilty as the day is long. My friend, the Bible tells us we need to be faithful to the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and to pray. Are you continuing? I want to ask every one of you in this room, and I really hope you'll do this, if you have not already. And this might sound harsh, but I don't mean this to be harsh at all. I want you to die. I don't mean that in a funny way. I want you to die to your thinking, to your ideas, to the authority that you have set up in your mind, separating you from the very throne of God, setting up your own throne. Die to yourself. Repent is the word. And, and for the non-Christian, the Bible says when we die, physically we bury that body. When we die spiritually, we bury the body as well. The Bible, or, or history, science tells us that when we are born the first time, life comes by way of life, conception. But when we live spiritually, it begins by death. A dying to self and allowing Christ to raise us up and to walk in the brand new life of service, of service to Him. If you need to make a decision, I encourage you strongly as Veronica comes forward to play for us. Church, let's get on fire. Let's set this place on fire. Let's set this community, this area on fire for God to fill these pews to where people are sitting on the front rows begging for a seat. Let's stand and sing. <clears throat>